uh, a weekend that the, the um, elders are going to go away on a retreat. We leave on Friday. We're going to come back uh, late Sunday morning. So, uh, so we won't be here. I won't be here this Sunday morning. Um, and I share that with you for a couple of reasons. One is I'd like for you, if you would, to pray for us this week. Make, uh, put it on your list and make it a matter of prayer that, that this retreat with the elders would be something that God would use, that, that God would speak to us through this process and that we would hear from him and that um, we'd be able to make sense of what he says and figure out how that would impact us individually, collectively as a group and um, as a church, that, that God would lead us in that way. Um, Retreats are great. They, they um, create a uh, terrific opportunity to just kind of have fresh perspective and to, and to hear uh, from God. And we want him to do that. that. So I want you to pray for us. That's the first thing. The second thing that the reason that I'm telling you is because next Sunday, Mike Winters is going to be speaking here. Um, Mike, I don't know if you, if you recognize that name or not. If you've been around North Point for a while, um, Mike was the guy who spoke in the summer of 2013 right um, at the very front end of a very difficult chapter for us as a church, Mike came in and um, on on real short notice came in and just spoke a, a great message. I listened to it this week and everybody that I've, when I've said, oh, that was the guy that came at that point in time, people said, oh, yeah, he's going to be great. He's really excited about coming back and, and being here and, um, and having a chance to share with us again. So pray for him this week as well. That's going to be a, a cool time. Um, Chris always kids me and says, you know, I start my messages with kind of a ruble moment kind of thing. And um, <laughs> I got two Christmas presents that I want to share that are really important. OK, um, hold on. <laughs> this is so good. Um, if you were here back in the fall, I preached a message on compassion and, and, and talked about when God fills our hearts with compassion, it changes the way we see the world around us. And as an illustration of that, I shared something that we won at a silent auction, which was a Michigan State blanket. Um, if you're new to North Point, um, I came from Ohio. I'm a Ohio State guy. And so it was a, that was a big deal, right? So on the Sunday before Christmas, I received a present in my office from someone here at North Point. Let me figure out how to open this up. Is that beautiful or what? Is that nice? It's gorgeous, right? So I am grateful. I am grateful. Uh, so now if you come to my house, that Michigan State blanket may be covered up by an Ohio State quilt. All right. The, the, um, the second present that I got I, on New Year's Day, I went to uh, some friend's house here from North Point, and they had a Christmas present for me, and it was wonderful, and I just thought I would share it with you as well. What do you know? What do you know? What do you know? What do you know? Well, miracles never happen, right? I, they said you have to wear it on Sunday morning to preach, but it'd be too hot, right? So I'm, I'm not going to. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, we're four days in the new year. Four days in the new year. So everybody made the resolutions, right? And four days in, everybody's tracking perfectly, right? You've exercised every day. 
eaten healthy every day, right? You've gone on a date with your husband or wife already. You've been kinder to your children. You've spent more time with God reading his word. You're 100% on everything, right? Or maybe not, right? Um, I, read a, I read a Facebook post from a friend from a long time ago that was written at 7.30 on New Year's Eve. Um, New Year's Eve, I think, for most people is kind of a, a reflective time, really kind of until alcohol sets in when it does. Um, let, me, let me share what this friend wrote. 2014 was a huge transition year for me. It was a year of following my passion, a year of risky successes and challenging failures. I laughed, I cried, I soared, I fell. I allowed myself to live an unapologetically honest life. As I look back on the last 365 days, I can't be anything but grateful for all the laughter, the tears, the lessons that I learned, and the people I was lucky enough to cross paths with. I am so unbelievably blessed. Cheers to leaving behind anything that kept us stuck this year and starting uh, 2015 fresh. Without anger, resentment, or regret, but instead with hope, passion, and fire. I hope you're feeling as empowered as I am. There's a whole other 365 days, a fresh new year, just waiting for us to not merely survive, but to live. This is the year, the year we thrive, the year we stop letting ourselves be anything less than our amazing full potential. I can feel it. There's, there's something wonderful about that post, isn't, that, isn't there? There's a sense of, of gratitude, of fresh beginnings, of, of no regrets. But, but knowing this person and reading it, there was, for me when I read it, a sense of emptiness as well. Three short paragraphs, 13 times they use the word I. And I, I, think, I think part of our challenge when we start the new year is it, it matches the video. We have all these resolutions. We have all these things and we think, oh, if I can just buckle down and do it, uh, if, I can, you know, if I can put my nose to the grindstone, everything's going to be better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it all. And, um, and, and that's kind of the approach that we have and then we struggle when we fail. What I want to do in this morning's message is to give you some real practical things that are uh, maybe a little bit different than normal straight scripture that are pretty simple that can be um, guardrails for us, that, that can be some challenges that we can take hold of, real practical things put into our life that ultimately can transform our lives. They can transform our families and they can transform our church to be the kind of place that, that God wants it to be. If you've got your Bibles, um, take them out, turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 7. We're ultimately going to come, come with four challenges that come out of this passage of Scripture. Starting in verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing, to, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. If you're reading on screen, if you're reading your scripture and you don't read ahead, you think, okay, what, what is it? 
What, what is this new command that John gives us? Verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there's no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The challenge for us, real practical challenge in 2015, is love your brother. Um, Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing something else. John says that it's hypocrisy if we say that we walk in the light, but we hate our brother. That doesn't match up. It's not consistent. It, it, um, it says that, that something's wrong. Um, and, and I think that that leads us to the question to say, okay, who is my brother? Who is it that I'm supposed to love? And I think it's pretty easy to go um, to Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan when, when the religious leader says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, you know, the, the guy that is in need, anybody that's in need, that's your neighbor, that's your brother, that's who we're called to love. But when we hear that message collectively, when we hear that message, we think, okay, I'm supposed to love everyone. That means the people um, that are in the restaurant around me that I don't really have a relationship with, the people maybe at work that I see on occasion, I'm supposed to love those people. People, in my, I'm supposed to love those people. I want to, get, I want to give you a picture that I, I think that's real practical. If you think about three concentric circles, a target, if you will, I, I want us to start in the center. And I think the call from God to, for us to love our brother starts with this center circle. And the center circle is made up of the people that are closest to us. They are our family, our spouse, our children, our parents, our siblings. Those people that we're connected to by blood, God calls us to love. If you think about it, sometimes we give our worst to our family. The people that we theoretically love the most are the most difficult for us to love as God calls us to love. Um, why is that? I I think sometimes it's because we feel like we've extended love to these people and they should know what we want in return. They should know how to respond. They should have respect for who I am and what I do. They should be thinking from my perspective. And so when they hurt me, I have the right to hurt them back. I have the right to inflict some pain back because their pain hurts me. That's not what God God calls us to do. Um, The challenge for us to love within our family for some of us it's real easy for others there's a, there's a person that's at the front of your mind right now that you're thinking i don't know if i can do it about 10 years ago i had somebody come in my office a, a, a gal named leslie and i don't remember exactly why she came in she said i need to talk to you about something i said yeah fine come on in and i think that it was in the fall and i think that she had questions about how to handle the holidays like lots of people Turmoil in the family and trying to trying to figure out how to put the pieces together for how she was going to manage this family time with very hard relationships. And as we talked, um, it became clear that Leslie's ability to love 
her dad, had been blown up lots and lots of years ago. There was hurt and pain and distance. They were, they were emotionally separated in a huge, huge way. And so Leslie came with this problem, how do I manage the holidays? But in reality, what happened was I, I said, Leslie, I don't know how to tell you this, but that's not the issue. The issue is you've got to forgive your dad. You have to love your dad. And she said, I don't, I don't know that I can. And I said, it's, a, it's not really a matter of whether you think you can or not. You're commanded to. You've got to love your dad. And, um, and she left the office. It's about 10 years ago. A couple of years ago, we were back in, um, in Virginia and had a chance to, to see Leslie and her husband. And, and she pointed back to that, that afternoon as a, as a defining moment in her life. Her relationship with her dad had been transformed. Their family relationship had changed because she chose to love. Think about the people who, in this, who are in the circle that are closest to you, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your siblings. God calls us to love those. And then that's that center circle. The next circle that's outside, outside of that, I think, are, are the people that have hurt you the, the worst, the people who have intentionally wounded you. Um, that, that may be... That may be a former spouse. That may be somebody at work who took credit for work that you did, who got the promotion that you deserved, who, um, you know, who, who knows what happened. But you know who that person is. That may be a bully at school, maybe the teacher that doesn't seem to like you. There, there's, there are people in your life that it feels like they have made it their mission to destroy you. And God calls you to love them. Because if we say that we walk in the light and we hate our brother, that doesn't, it, it, it's, not, it's not true. It's, it's not real. Um, so you've got the people that are closest to you, the people who have tried to hurt you in that next circle. And then, this, and then I think there's a circle outside of that, that that we can think very intentionally about. And in that circle are the people who are radically different than us. Um, start thinking about the kinds of ways that people are different from us. There are people who are different than we are um, uh, racially. For us, you know, we're, we're a pretty lily-white place. That's probably not a good representative of the kingdom, but that, that is what it is. And God calls us to love people who are different than us. It may be difficult for you to love uh, somebody who's African-American, somebody who's Hispanic, somebody who's Asian, somebody who's from the Middle East. And yet God says, love your brother. There are people who are different than, than we are socioeconomically. It may be a struggle for you to love someone who's significantly poorer than you are. You think, why can't they get a real job? Why can't they work hard? And it's hard for us to love them. It may be hard for you to love someone who has significantly more resources than you do. Somebody who's rich. And you think, who do they think they are? They got all this stuff. Where do they get all that money? If they were, if, 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 if they were really kind, if they were really a father of Jesus, they'd do this or that or whatever with their money. And it's hard to love someone who's different than we are socioeconomically. It may be hard for you to love somebody who's different than you are educationally. Somebody, somebody who's not 
as smart maybe who hasn't experienced the education that you have. And you think, what is wrong with them? They can't match their nouns and verb tenses. And, and it's a struggle. Why can't they talk right? And the flip side of that is it may be difficult for you to love someone who has all the letters after their names. PhD, you know, whatever it is. And you think, you know what, I can't be any kind of relationship with them because they've gone to all that school. They're so much smarter than I am, whatever. People who are different than us. It may be people who are different than, than you are theologically. They come from a different place, a different denomination, or a different worldview. It, it may be people who are different than you politically. God calls us to love our brothers. Can you, can you do that on your own? Can you choose to love someone who's hurt you? Can you choose to love someone that you've grown up with this sibling rivalry thing that you fought tooth and nail all the time? Can you do that? Can you love someone who's radically different than you? The answer to that is yes. Because Jesus said this in John 13. Just as I, a, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. A new commandment I give to you. Jesus wouldn't give us a command that we couldn't obey. Sometimes we say, God, I just need you to pray to help. I, I can't do this on my own. I need you to. You know what? Jesus commanded us to. So we can make choices to live out what that love looks like. You can choose to love instead of hate. You can choose to be kind instead of being mean. You can choose to say nothing instead of saying something bad or evil. You can choose to focus on the bad and to live there, or you can choose to focus on, on something, on anything else instead. You can make those choices. They may not immediately create the warm, fuzzy feeling that we associate with love. But they are acts of love, and those choices honor God. You can begin to pray regularly for those people that you hate. To pray for God to love them, to bless them, to draw those people to himself. You can ask God to give you empathy and compassion for them. You can pray and ask God to help that person experience redemption. Most of us, though, won't do that because we choose to hold on to our anger, to our bitterness, to our hurt, and to our pain. We think if we've been wronged and hurt, we deserve to hold on to those feelings. Two chapters later, John says this, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. Uh, this whole concept of loving your brother, I thought, uh, what, what is an illustration of that that we can wrap our arms around and really get a hold of? And, it, and I was thinking through Scripture, and I, I went back to Genesis 37, to the story of Joseph. Um, 
Many of you have dysfunctional families. You come from families that there's just lots of junk in. There is, I don't think that there's probably any family more dysfunctional than the family of Joseph. Okay? Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. So he's got two wives first. He gets tricked in the process. But he has two wives. And he has two mistresses that are sanctioned by the wives so that they can have kids. Okay? So he's sleeping with four different women. There are kids from four different women in the home. Think, think about the mess that is. And one of the 12 sons, and at least one daughter, but probably more daughters too, one of those is daddy's favorite. And he knows he's daddy's favorite, and he's bold about being daddy's favorite. That's a mess. And what happens? The brothers finally get to the point that they say, enough is enough. We're killing you. We've had it. It's done. And their intent was to take his life. Instead, they sell him into slavery, knowing, knowing that they're going to break their father's heart. And they're going to take the life of their brother. He's sold into slavery. He goes hundreds, thousands of miles away to Egypt. He's there for most of his adult life. And there's an incredible picture that happens. Genesis 37 is where it starts. Genesis 45 Um, The story of Joseph has has played out. Joseph's brothers have come back because of a famine and they're desperate for food. They're starving, literally starving to death. Joseph, because of God's blessing, has food in Egypt that he can give them. He recognizes his brothers and they go through through a long process there that you can read about. But but at the beginning of chapter 45, it is incredible. The picture that happens when Joseph realizes His dad's alive. His brothers understand what has happened and they've repented. And and the picture that's there is that Joseph weeps uncontrollably, so loud that the entire household can hear it, so so loud that the, the household of Pharaoh hears about what happens as his heart breaks when he recognizes that restoration can happen. He reveals himself to his brothers. Did Joseph have the right to hate his brothers? From a worldly perspective, absolutely. Did Joseph have the right to punish them and to withhold grain from them? Absolutely. He had the the position to be able to do it. He had the background to be able to do it. Joseph chose to love his brothers. He chose to see from a big picture his particular instant, his particular situation. Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God has the ability to redeem relationships and we're called to love our brothers. That's the first challenge for 2015. The second one starts in verse 12, and and it's simply to know who you are, to understand who you are. Uh, John says this in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men. Because you have overcome the evil one. And then he starts through that process again, through, the, through a parallel passage today. He says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome 
the evil one. What happens there is this parallel structure where, where John, in order to emphasize what he's saying, goes back through the same process um, two different times. And the, and the pictures there, when he says, I write to you little children, that the, the picture there is of, of, of a, a, a child's mindset, a perspective that uh, what they get about what they get in terms of their relationship with Christ. So if you think about a kid, a kid knows exactly who his parents are. You can put a child any place, and if their parents are in the room, they'll, they'll make a beeline right to them. They know their parents. Um, and he says, for you, for some of us, as children, understand that your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. Those are the two things that he says in that, in that parallel position. You know who God is. You've experienced salvation. For some of you who are in here, you have experienced that firsthand in 2014. You've experienced that recently. This, the whole idea that God can forgive sins and make everything new. He says, you who are fathers, you have the big view of things. You're the seasoned veterans in your relationship with Jesus. You know him who is from the beginning. He says that same, those same words two times. You know him who is from the beginning. So interesting to me to watch my dad. My dad turned 86 in December. And, um, and, and my dad has gone from being very engaged at every level of life with all kinds of stuff to the point that he recognizes that death is not very far away. You know, he may have five years, ten years at the most here on earth. He, he gets the big picture. He, so he doesn't sweat the small stuff. Can you believe he didn't stay up and watch the football game on Thursday night? Dad understands an eternal perspective. And that's what John says to your fathers. You know him. You know God who's from the beginning. You understand the concept that he's eternal. You understand who he is, his character. He says, you, uh, he writes to young men, to, to those people who are engaged in the battle, the active soldiers, don't get, don't get um, caught up in the male language that's there, the picture that's there is of kind of three different life stages. You have overcome the evil one. For most of us, that's the place that we're living. Understand, understand in knowing who you are, that Christ lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Your sins are forgiven. You're a child of God. That's incredible news. And that changes the way that we think about how we live this next year. The word of God lives in us. We have the ability to do battle, to fight it tooth and nail, to live for Jesus. Knowing who you are changes everything. It creates an incredible sense of boldness. Um, Deb and I both went to college at Cincinnati Bible College and Seminary. It's been renamed now as Cincinnati Christian University. And when we went there as freshmen, there was, uh, you know, each college, I think, each university has some professors that have been around, like, since the beginning of time. They've been there taught, uh, you know, for years and years and years and years. At Cincinnati, uh, there was was a man named George Mark Elliott who was on staff. He had taught for decades there. He was a tremendously godly man. Um, even in his eighties, he was in the office between six and six thirty in the morning studying. 
studying so that he would know God better. Incredible example. Um, he only taught uh, when I was there just a, a little bit of a couple of graduate classes, so I never had him in class. But this godly man that, that people just respected tremendously. There was a guy in our class named Mark Morris who was, um, every college has these people as well. Um, he, w- he was um, ADHD. You know, he bounced off the walls, no sense of propriety, just doing crazy stuff all the time. Mark was there. So we had chapel twice a week um, early that year, um, probably second, third week of school. I had made friends with Mark. We were doing some stuff together. We go to chapel and, and, and Mark said, how much you give me if I go over to that guy and say, hey, grandpa. I said, Mark, you can't do that. That's George Mark Elliott. He said, I don't know who he is. How much you give me? I said, Mark, don't do it. Do not do it. He said, how much you give me if I go and call him? Hey, Grandpa. I said, Mark, don't. He runs over. Hey, Grandpa. And Mr. Elliot said, morning, Mark, because he was his grandpa. (laughs) When you know who you are, Everything changes. You have a sense of boldness, a sense of perspective, a sense of purpose. When you understand that Jesus has forgiven us, that God's word lives in us. Know who you are. That's the second challenge. Third challenge, don't love the world. Verse 15 says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that's in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What's what's the world that we love? I think John explains it really well. He says the desires of the flesh, anything that gives us pleasure. That may be physical kinds of relationships. It may be food. It may be anything that makes our body say, that's good. That's the stuff of the world. Talks about the desires of the eyes. What, what is that? That's anything tangible that we can see that we want. It's all the stuff of life, right? The desires of the eyes. Uh, I, I think a number of years ago, there was probably an advertising campaign. I can't remember for sure that, that used this phrase. This phrase is still a part of our culture, even though it's not used as much. It's the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? That's, um, even if we don't articulate that, it's easy for us to live that way, right? We think that our life has more value if we have more stuff. If we have a bigger house, if we have a better car, if we have blah, blah, blah. Our life is more significant. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's not the case. That's the stuff of the world. I think for most of us at this time of year, that truth is just painfully clear. Because what did you experience on Christmas Day, late in that day or the next day? All the stuff, all the presents on the tree, all the cool things. Everything gets opened and it's there. And when it's all done, you kind of have this sense of... Okay, so what? Right? The desires of the eyes, the stuff that we want. Last thing mentions is the pride of life. It's, it is that 
desire for reputation, for prestige, for position. It's the, it's the thing that, that we fight to get respect from other people. Um, those three things that are mentioned in 1 John 2 parallel really closely to the temptation of Jesus. If you think about how Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, what happens? Jesus, Jesus was baptized. He goes into the wilderness. He goes on a 40-day fast, so he's not eaten anything for 40 days. And Satan comes to him and says, look at these stones. You can turn them into bread. You can turn them into the best bread that has ever been made. And your flesh will be fed. Desires of the flesh, right? Jesus refused. Satan takes Jesus on top of the mountain and says, look, look in every direction, all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you it all. I have the power to, and he did. I have the ability to to put you in charge of all of that stuff. The desires of the eyes. Satan takes Jesus on top of the temple and says, hey, jump, jump off the temple. Because you're the son of God. And scripture says the angels are not going to let you fall down and be dashed on the rocks. If you, if you do that, everybody's going to say, oh, you're Jesus, you're the Messiah. Everything will be taken care of. The pride of life. Everybody drawing their attention to him. Understand that those are all stuff of the world. What, what is it that you want more than anything else in life? If it's anything other than God, you're loving the world. What, what takes precedence for you over everything else? Lake house? Fishing, boating, hunting? A sports experience for your kids? Your retirement plan? Financial security? Finding a spouse? your personal safety or security. There's not anything wrong with any of those things, but when they become the priority that drives our life, we're loving the world. There are no U-Hauls in funeral processions. The stuff that we have doesn't go with us. John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father isn't in him. Love your brother. Know who you are. Don't love the world. last thing I want to give you today is is do the will of God. Uh, Verse 17 says, The world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's the will of God? We could take... Lots and lots of time to kind of develop that. Let me, let me just give you four scriptures that for me just bubbled right to the top for me. Um, Luke 19, Jesus said, here's why I came. I came to seek and the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. What's the will of God? It's to seek and save the lost. Micah chapter 6 says, what does God require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Luke 4, Jesus quotes 
the Old Testament prophets and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's the will of God? It's to free people who are stuck, free people who are in bondage. It's to bring life where there isn't any. It's to bring hope. Jesus said in Matthew 28, one of the last things he said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. Do the will of God. That's our challenge. What's, what's your plan for 2015? All the goals that we talked about early on are good. You know, the exercise, the healthy, all, all that stuff's good. But it really is about an opportunity for us to change our perspective, to be the people that God's called us to be. Um, you know, there's a cliche that says when we fail to plan, we plan to fail. It's a cliche because there's truth in that. If we don't have a plan... Nothing's going to happen. My desire out of the message this morning is that these four things can practically invade your life, that they, that they can give you some structure. You can begin to think, how do I love my brother? What's the relationship that's there that has to change? Um, how, how can I live with a perspective that I know who I am? How can I not love the world? How can I do the will of God? What's What's God calling you? Who is God calling you to be and what is God calling you to do? That's that's the question. About 30 years ago, Deb and I went to a conference that was called Praise Gathering in Indianapolis, Indiana. A Praise Gathering was a conference that existed for a number of years that Bill and Gloria Gaither um, sponsored. The, the Gaither Trio back in those days. It was a, it was a great time. Uh, the, the, one of the cool things about the Gaithers... Uh, about praise gathering was that they had just a wide variety of people who were there. They, they had musicians that were the whole Gaither trio, Gaither vocal band stuff, and they had acapella groups, and they had like rap stuff. They had bluegrass. They had the symphony come and play all to the glory of God. And they had a v- wide variety of speakers that came in as well, people from all kinds of backgrounds theologically that loved Jesus And we're preaching his word. One of those speakers that I remember very clearly from praise gathering was a guy named Juan Carlos Ortiz. He was a pastor from Argentina, from Buenos Aires. And he told a story that 30 years later um, sticks in my mind. I can can remember him telling this story. Um, His church was uh, running about a thousand in attendance. And, um, and he was getting up to preach one Sunday. And, um, and his, the passage of scripture he was going to preach from was uh, John 13. Um, new commandment I give you, love one another. And he said, the, you know, the, the, everybody was singing, they were engaged in worship, and he's having this conversation before um, he begins to preach with God. It just felt really, you know, that God was speaking to him and said, oh, what you preach on today? And Juan Carlos Ortiz said, I'm preaching, love one another. And, and that God said to him, how many times have you preached that sermon? And um, and he said, oh, I've probably preached some variation of this 10 or 12 times. And he said he really felt God saying, how's that working for you? And it was time for him to preach. And he got up and, and he said, today's message is love one another. And he sat back down. 
And you can imagine what happened in the congregation. Everybody did just kind of what you're doing. They just sat, thought, oh, that's interesting. That's, that's really good. I'll have to meditate on that. And as the minutes rolled by with Ortiz sitting down in his chair, there was this sense of, okay, is there some creative element? You know, surely there's going to be some illustration that happens out of this. And eight or ten minutes later, he got back up and said, today's message is love one another. And he sat back down. And people began to get more uncomfortable as they're thinking, you know, has the preacher lost his mind? You know, is, it, is he just not prepared? What's going on? Long break again. He gets up and he says, today's message is love one another and sat back down. He said after the third time he did it, that over in one section of the auditorium, somebody stood up and said, I think I get what he's saying. We're supposed to love each other. And how can we love each other if we don't know each other? So tell me about yourself. So a pocket of conversation happened over here. Another pocket of conversation happened over here. Another pocket of conversation began to happen. And people began to connect and to figure out what it meant to love one another. And he said that as a result that morning, a woman with kids with no food, somebody provided food for. Another person that, would, that didn't have a job walked away that morning with a job as the body began to love one another. People who were in need had needs met in different ways. The, the, cra- the crazy thing about that story is Ortiz got up and he said, you know, I, that's, a, that's a pretty amazing story. He said, for three months, I preached the same sermon. I would get up on Sunday morning and say, today's message is love one another. And people would then begin to minister to each other and do what God had called them to do. The easy thing this morning, he said about that, he said, I, I figured once they learned that lesson, I could go preach another sermon. Um, the easy thing this morning is to hear today's message and say, yeah, I've got to love my brother. Yeah, I need to know who I am. I, I need to not love the world. I need to do the will of God. The easy thing is to go home and say, yeah, that was good. The challenge is what God calls us to do is to put it into action. I don't know what that, I don't know what that means for you. Um, it may mean this afternoon you go home and make a phone call to a family member, that you write a letter. I don't, I don't know what that is. It, it may mean that it, that it begins to change the way you think about life because you understand that you've been forgiven. It may be that you make some significant changes in terms of the stuff of life. It may be that you begin to develop some relationships with some people who are far from God. The challenge is to do something, to, to put it into practice and not just let it sit. Let's pray. God, it's, it is um, incredible to think that you know each of us. You know our relationships. You know our weakness. You know the things that we struggle with. 
You know our faulty worldviews. You know the people that you want to reach through us. That's such an incredible thing to know that that you're not distant, that you love us. God, help us. Supply power. Convict us. Let us not run away from you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing. Um, I, I don't know if you want to come up and pray while we sing. It's kind of an up song, a good song. Come pray if you want to. Do whatever God calls you to do. Put it into action. Let's, let's stand together and sing.